Hey there, and welcome to show number two of our multi-part series on sepsis. Today, we're going to go further in depth into the history of the surviving sepsis campaign, Rivers' early goal-directed therapy landmark trial, and Jones' lactate clearance trial. Basically, pre-new trial sepsis care, so pre-2014. Let's start with a case. So a 55-year-old male comes into the ED with significant hypoxemia and hypotension. He had been trying to tough it out with an episode of bronchitis over the last few weeks in the setting of having COPD. He doesn't like doctors and avoids them at all costs. When he arrives in the ED, he's rapidly going up on his oxygen requirements to the point of needing non-invasive ventilation. A chest x-ray shows a low bar pneumonia and he does poorly overall on non-invasive ventilation and requires intubation. His blood pressure was soft on arrival, but responded nicely to his initial 30cc per kg fluid bolus. However, after he was intubated and sedated, he started to become more hypotensive, initially with MAPS in the 50s. Ah, uh, taking away that catecholamine surge and adding positive pressure. His lab work comes back with evidence of AKI, creatinine is 1.75. He's got a lactic acidosis with a lactate of 3.7, leukocytosis, and bandemia. You are the ICU attending called to admit this patient. He's definitely going to the ICU, but does he require a central line? Or are you going to follow Rivers' early goal-directed therapy if you place that line? His lab work comes back with evidence of AKI. His creatinine is 1.75, but also he's got a lactic acidosis with a lactate of 3.7, leukocytosis, and bandemia. Is his worsening hypotension merely related to sedation after intubation, you know, taking away that catecholamine drive that was present beforehand? Or is it a sign of decompensation and he's actually developing septic shock? Is there a way to distinguish between the two? And if you could, would it matter in how you treat him? With 30 cc's per kg, he's probably already received at minimum two, probably closer to two and a half liters of fluids. Is that enough? Would you reach for pressors next, or would you wait for numbers like a central venous pressure? Is this patient in front of you still volume deplete? How can you tell quickly and easily if you aren't a fan of central venous pressure? As you can see, there are lots of questions on how to deal with one of the most straightforward types of critically ill septic patients. We haven't even got into what if this patient had heart failure or end-stage renal disease. <laughs> Let's start with a brief basic explanation of what Rivers' trial was and give you some context to our history. So Emmanuel Rivers was from Detroit. Shout out to my hometown, the Motor City. Jeremy. (laughs) Rivers published a single center study in the ED in 2001 at Henry Ford looking at protocolizing sepsis care into essentially a six-hour bundle. This bundle primarily included early focus of attention in the ER, which Rivers termed the golden hours, and made us shift our thinking of sepsis to more similar to MI and stroke. Early, high-quality care became extremely important to achieve good outcomes. SERS criteria, along with hypotension and elevated lactate, were used to determine if patients had severe sepsis or septic shock, and thus sick enough to enter the trial. The early goal-directed therapy group got central lines and looked at improving CVP, MAP, and SCVO2 as therapy targets, i.e. goals, through the use of fluid, pressors, blood, and dobutamine. What is different about this trial compared to the actual practice in our system is that the patients were kept in the ED for at least six hours 
rather than being taken to the ICU as soon as possible. That's a big difference in trial design compared to real practice for sure. Quiz time for our listeners out there. We're about to play What's Your Early Goal-Directed Therapy Goal? John, are you ready? Uh, I think I can do this. What's your goal for CVP? 8 to 12. Ooh, what about for vented patients? Mm, 12 to 15. So that was 8 to 12 for non-vented, 12 to 15 for vented. I would say you are correct. What about those for mean arterial pressure? Greater than 65. Ooh, not bad. And uh, what about SCVO2? Less than 70, I'm going to give them blood or dibutamine. I would say you get 100%. Nice. (laughs) So what were the results of the trial? So Rivers got a 16% reduction in both hospital and 28-day mortality between the control and early goal-directed therapy groups. And the study had a total of 236 patients. There have been criticisms for years about the Rivers trial. We've all been taught to be skeptical of single-center trials. And there's always been questions that Dr. Rivers' inner-city Detroit patient population might be sicker than the average septic shock population in the country. The clinicians also couldn't be blinded to the treatment by the nature of the study design. If you look at the baseline characteristics of the patients in both groups, the average lactate in both groups is somewhere between 6.6 and 7.7. This is very anecdotal of me, but it's not every shift I see a lactate that high. I distinctly remember a famous podcast saying that Manny Rivers is a resuscitation legend. Of course, patients will improve if they're in his ED with intense, focused care without the ability to blind. Other interesting facts, the early goal-directed therapy group received more fluid in the early six-hour window, but there was no difference in total fluid over 72 hours. A huge difference, though, is transfusions. With the early goal-directed therapy group, 64% were transfused versus only 18% in the control group. Similar rates of presser use were seen in both groups in the first six hours, but when you looked at the total 0 to 72 hours, Significantly less presser requirements were in the early goal-directed therapy group. The use of dobutamine was to be expected significantly higher in the early goal-directed therapy group. That was 13% in EGDT versus less than 1% in the control in the first six hours. There have been arguments against Rivers since the article was published around many things, but let's start with CVP. It's true that CVP by itself, when studied, has less than robust evidence. We'll link a classic article in Chess by Paul Merrick, often referenced for a CVP called A Tale of Seven Mares. But the intervention studied in Rivers' trial was a bundle of care, and it should be looked at as such. Rivers' purists would argue that you can't pick apart individual parts of the bundle because that isn't what he studied. He studied the bundle in entirety, rather than looking at just CVP or just SCVO2. Right. Let's do a quick refresher on the Surviving Sepsis Campaign. I remember it like it was yesterday. The Surviving Sepsis Campaign was formed the same year the Rivers trial came out, in late 2001, early 2002. Sepsis Definitions 2.0 were released in 2001, after the originals came out in 1991. The Surviving Sepsis Campaign was formed by members of SCCM and ESICM. The guidelines were revised again in 2008 and 2012, and the essence of the guidelines has remained early goal-directed therapy, particularly in regards to the six-hour bundle. The most recent revision in 2012, the major changes included more emphasis on lactate clearance after the Jones trial in 2010, which we're going to cover next, 
preferential use of crystalloids and norepinephrine, and a decreased emphasis on corticosteroids and sepsis. I think we've glossed over the three-hour bundle portion of the surviving sepsis campaign. Essentially, if a patient is deemed septic, they should get fluids, we should draw a lactate, they should get early broad-spectrum antibiotics, and we should obtain blood cultures all within the first three hours. You would ideally draw the cultures prior to antibiotics administration, but they make sure to point out you shouldn't let this delay your antibiotics administration. Both of these additions to the three-hour bundle must be done within the first hour of recognition. Time zero for the sepsis bundle is also an area that's been previously and hotly debated, but as it stands now, it's either triage time in the ED or on the floor in our system, it's the time of positive screen for severe sepsis or septic shock. At some point, we should talk about where these patients come from. A lot is made about identifying septic patients in the ED, and rightfully so. Multiple triage screens have been created by different ED groups around the country that is beyond the time we would want to spend on this podcast. All are some variation of risk stratification, SIRS or some other type, with quick point-of-care severity of illness markers such as lactate. What doesn't get talked about is that a lot of patients develop sepsis on the floor or in other areas of the hospital, the patients that we have already admitted, not the ones in the ED. Exactly. Our system has found upwards of 50% of our patients who come to the ICU for sepsis come from the floors instead of the ED. We'll get into more detail about this in a later podcast around risk stratifiers and how to identify those patients on the Let's talk about the Jones trial that came out in JAMA in 2010, looking at lactate clearance. That sounds benign enough, right? Who wouldn't want their lactate to clear? I know I would. Well, it wasn't benign. Jones looked at lactate clearance versus SCVO2 as therapy targets in sepsis. He looked at 300 patients in a multi-center trial of severe sepsis and septic shock, and he utilized a lactate clearance of 10% in addition to CVP and MAP instead of SCVO2. The results were non-inferior to the Rivers protocol. Ah, so satisfying, the non-inferior trial. (laughs) Jones and Rivers had a drama-filled back and forth in chest, doing a point and counterpoint that was, well, as drama-filled as a major publication could be. Really? Tell me more. Yeah, don't get too comfortable. Let's just say that it led to Dr. Jones accusing Rivers of either having the sickest patients observed in the world or a selection bias. He questioned the external validity of early goal-directed therapy, and he cites that the mortality in the control group of early goal was 20% higher than that of any other observed mortality in recent sepsis literature. Jones brought up the issue that all hospitals may not be able to support running continuous SCVO2s. And it could increase the cost of sepsis care, particularly in community hospital areas in low-income countries. Rivers argued that patients develop multi-organ failure and die without ever having a lactate elevation. He's right. We have all observed that in our clinical practice. But he also challenged the notion that a non-inferiority study means equivalency, citing the difficulty designing and ultimately interpreting those studies. His comments about the feasibility of running SCVO2s on all patients are particularly interesting and a common theme that comes up in the sepsis world repeatedly, particularly as sepsis 3.0 came out. He states, we do not avoid complex interventions for trauma, stroke, or MI, and cites that sepsis really has a higher mortality compared to all those diagnoses. 
We want to spend more time on this later and talk about sepsis resources as it relates to large tertiary centers versus community hospitals versus low-income countries. There's lots to talk about based on the Rivers versus Jones debate on both sides. But let's start on general use of early goal-directed therapy in our own personal practice. We have really seen excellent results over the past many years running early goal-directed therapy at several hospitals and systems. Each time we have implemented it, we've seen a drop in mortality. Most recent studies and databases have severe sepsis mortality rates about 18 to 26%, which is considerably less than the early 2000s. A lot of that should be attributed to Rivers and the Surviving Sepsis Campaign. While it's easy to pass judgment on trial design, certain aspects of the bundle, but the fact is the country has largely implemented it over the past decade and a half and has seen a global reduction in sepsis mortality. I think I see both sides of the argument. Running early goal-directed therapy as a new provider, less experience with sepsis is an absolute no-brainer. It's so algorithmic, and our new providers gravitate to it. As we'll see in the new trials, a new provider, in theory, running early goal-directed therapy, can achieve similar results with mortality as an experienced sepsis expert running usual care and going off protocol. The argument that we routinely hear from our intensivist team and others in the online medical community is that they feel that, as a provider in a large tertiary facility with all levels of support, that we really shouldn't have to adhere to a guideline designed for a hospital with more limited resources in mind. If I have assessed my patient and considered all variables, then I should be able to come up with a treatment plan for them without having to fear I'll be dinged for going off protocol. We have had all types of patients, for whatever reason, were poor candidates for the full sepsis bundle. That's something that we instill in new providers. You probably shouldn't go off protocol until you know what you're doing. Eventually, with experience, you can factor in things like CVP, lactate clearance, SCVO2, bedside ultrasound, clinical examination, flow track, and many of the other targets of therapy that have come out. And you can come up with a tailored clinical decision for the patient in front of you. Unfortunately, this isn't really something we can expect new providers to do. I would argue that it's even difficult for some experienced providers who aren't well-versed in advanced sepsis care. It's all well and good to want to be able to provide individualized care to each of our patients. But this is mostly reserved for the team members who have reviewed the literature on sepsis and feel that they're fully understanding of how their decision will affect each patient. And I think it sounds like we agree that our trainees who are new to the game should follow early goal-directed therapy, at least initially. Something our team has had great success with as we evolved into such a large and diverse group is the concept of protocols and variation. We have always advocated that our experienced team members can have what we call mindful variation rather than mindless variation. What does that mean? We want our team to follow the protocol when it makes sense for the patient, but also be able to utilize their expertise in treating patients when it makes sense for that patient. So if you're new and trying to hasten your growth to become a sepsis expert, what would you do? I would consume as much information as I could about sepsis, especially as an ICU provider. It's really our bread and butter. Mm, like this podcast series? Hopefully. But more than just study, 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 I would run early goal-directed therapy on my patients while simultaneously tracking all other endpoints that could become possibilities and see how frequently they match up and try careful deviation with the opinion of my colleagues. On our next episode, we're going to be bringing sepsis into the current decade with the most recent trials that set the ICU world on fire. But until next time, keep breathing, 
keep streaming and keep reading.